Hey, when did you become an epidemiologist? Uh, so shockingly, somewhere in March of 2020. <laughs> John Unidas wrote his piece March 17th, 2020, and uh, I sort of brought myself kind of informally into the club about March 19th, about 1:30, 1:30 p.m. Yeah, because I wasn't working at that time. What did you do during COVID the first month? So spring break, no one comes back. What were you doing? Well, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where homeschooling, uh, I, I think it was probably so I would so I teach part time. I was teaching part time online. So there was it was interesting where there was kind of this shutdown even of online, online school because well, transmit the computer virus. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was because they wanted everybody to kind of catch up. And because anyone that was in person, like, well, guess what? You need to spend the next three to four weeks. We're going to provide all these resources for you how to shift your in-person class to online. And so even the online courses, they just said, just stop so you don't. Because yeah. because people are in multiple classes, you don't want to be, oh, I'm 10 weeks in, but in this class I'm only. Oh, man, that's weird. I'm only, yeah, six weeks or whatever. Did, your, did any of the schools that you were, because you teach at two online, right? Did any of them just do the no one gets less than a B minus this year or whatever? Uh, I think they, what they did was they were very adamant about being flexible, um, with, with students, um, you know, because students getting COVID or, I mean, certainly the fear factor was pretty strong. So they were, they were pretty adamant, but I was like, well, what do you, I mean, I actually, so I actually think, uh, I remember pretty much most of the students in, in my classes generally found I don't mean specifically like with my class, but I just mean in general, I think the online class actually was, was something of a kind of a reprieve. It was kind of a, a, a thing that was normal where they could see people, they could hear someone. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny to think of March. Yeah. Because there's really a is. lot of fear. Yeah. A lot of question marks. And it seems so long ago. It, it wasn't. But I mean, I remember because my wife called me, she was at the rodeo. And they came around at one thirty with the bullhorns and um, told everybody to go home. Yeah. Folks, there's a nasty flu going around. Everybody, head home. I was talking with the woman that we just hired here at work, and she was telling me about a New York trip that she's going on. I was like, yeah, the last time I was in New York City was uh, January 2nd through 5th. <laughs> uh, the good old Rockford Diocese brought me out. and. In Long Island, and because I never looked at a map, apparently, I thought Long Island was right next to New York City. Turns out it is, but it also turns out it's also very far away because <laughs> it's a long damn island. And uh, so we went and went to Times Square. I mean, this is also who I am. I didn't look at where – I didn't Google map where Rockport City or – Rockford City? Oh, crap. Now I'm, I'm confused. Wait, was this the trip you went on yeah. with the, with the Rockville wifey? Center City. Oh, shit. They're going to be so mad. There's like a bunch of breeze I listen from there. <laughs> But uh, the Rock City place <laughs> in Long Island, yeah, I had an event there on the 5th. So on the 2nd, me and Shannon flew into New Jersey, and then we drove to Times Square on a bus. And then it dropped us right off of Times Square, and our hotel was right across the street from where the ball dropped. And they cleaned up all the vomit and glitter and confetti. It was awesome. <laughs> God bless them. And uh, it's the, this guy said to me, if it's not snowing, the, the first week of January is literally the best time to visit New York. So why is that? And he said, well, all the annoying people are gone. He said literally three days ago for New Year's Eve, 
this place was 10 times more crowded. And I was like, holy crap. He said, and so, like, when you're walking on the sidewalk, you are literally like you're in a subway car. Wow. You are pressed against people on every side. And they're doing construction on everything all the time. There's all this scaffolding where you're like, oh, I got to get around here. Yeah. Sound like the brain from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. Ah, you know, he's inside the. <laughs> I'll get you, turtles. No. So, anyway, it's very powerful, very spiritual, moving. and yeah, very moving. And, uh, but no, they said that all of the Broadway plays are half price. Did we go to one? No. Thanks, yeah. Shannon. Um, <laughs> and he said she's cultured. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So cultured. But that actually meant like more probiotic stuff. Yeah. She's just filled with all sorts of bacteria. <laughs> God bless her. Candida. It's Candida. <laughs> candida again. Yeast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we missed we missed everything. Uh, of, I mean, the crowds, the insanity. Then we got on a train, uh, the light train to Long Island, and uh, whatever that's called, it's got a fancy name, and we just took it, and we're like, oh, wow, this is kind of far out. And then I'm like, let me Google map it. I was like, oh, dear Lord, oh. it's an hour and a half away. <laughs> okay. Whoopsie. Oh, man, I was so unprepared for that trip. Kind of like the trip that I'm going to do in a couple hours of the Holy Land. Ooh. Whenever I think of New York subways, I think of the opening scene in Daredevil with, with Ben Affleck. Yeah. When he says to the guy when he's laying on the tracks, he said, you see that light? That's not heaven. That's the sea train. And then the guy gets just run over by it. And then you realize, oh, Daredevil just killed the oh, guy. Yikes. Best part of that movie. Straight afterwards and the detective flicks his cigarette. And Daredevil left his calling card of lighter fluid in oh, the shape of the yes. DD. Yep. And it's like, how did you know it was right there, bro? How did yeah? How did you know? Yep. Kind of like the Batman thing, the Dark Knight Rises when he Gordon throws the the flame thing when they're standing on ice and he throws it oh, yeah. and it catches on the gasoline trail that is going all the way up this massive bridge and this tower that has the bat signal. How long did it take you to do that? Yeah. Who did it? Who do you think did it? Was Gordon did Gordon do it to Call Batman or did Batman do it? Was he out there with a can of gasoline? Throw, throw, throw it here. No, no. Pick it up again. Throw it here. <laughs> I already did it over there. Alfred, I said do it over there again. <laughs> I already did it over there. I swear to God. Swear to me. <laughs> the, oh, the, oh, it's beautiful. The college humor one with the Malkovich line is just great. What does he say? Uh, what does he, he says, where were the drugs going? Where were the other drugs going? I never knew. The... Wait, what? I said, where are the other drugs going? Why, why are you talking like that? It's a bad voice. It's a bad. Really kind of goes against the whole dark no, Batman no, no. thing. Are you kidding me? I worked on that like all day. It was like bat, sonar, high, squeaking. It's not scary. It's silly. I ran this by Elf. I, I ran this by people I know, and they loved it. It's bad. Bad. Wow. This is embarrassing. Can I please show you another one? Sure. Where were the other drugs going? face malkovich yeah he's scary it's like i'm better i'm stronger i'm batman no no it, it's totally wrong where were the other drugs going huh i was just kidding why why pacino maybe i am al pacino you don't know what's he do at night huh fight crime not a batman hello governor where were the drugs going you're representing gotham i wouldn't i wouldn't go british hey how you doing where were the other drugs going huh it's not good hey where were the drugs going? Where were the other drugs going? Where were the other drugs going? Yeah. Donde estar los drugs? Where were the other drugs going? The silly, silly drugs. 
Where, where were the drugs? Yeah. Supposed to be Dustin Hoffman. Where were the other drugs going? Huh? Do I look like I got to you? <laughs> okay. No, okay. All right. Yeah, fine. Where were the other drugs going? Oh, wait, 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 wait. What was that? What? Do that again. Where were the other drugs going? You know what? That's not bad. I just lost my voice. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, no, I swear to God. Swear to me! So good. It is funny. I think I shared this on Catching Foxes before, but I was talking with Rachel Leiniger. She's awesome. Uh, we just did an event in New Mexico together. Shout out to the Southwest Catholic Youth Conference folks. And uh, so we were doing this event, and we were talking about movies, and this lady, Shelly, was saying, you know, I don't let my kids who are under 13 watch a PG-13 movie. And she said, and it's funny because, you know, once you have one kid who turns 13, the, the kid who's like 11 is like chomping at the bit, right? She said, but we never really thought of like PG-13 from the 1980s and 90s is a totally different PG-13 <laughs> than today. Today is different. But they ain't even close. Yeah. But there's, and I was like, I know we watch Mrs. Doubtfire and there yeah. is so much foul language in that. We were like, well, we might turn it off, but you hear daddy cuss more than this. And Gordy Catching Foxes. Yeah. Well, and just that, that Mrs. Doubtfire is actually a really sad movie. It's kind of it it's kind of a dark movie. Yeah, when you step when, back and look at yeah, it. Yeah, when you when hey, there's you, a man dressed as a woman. Oh, this is a father whose life has oh, fallen apart. Oh my goodness, he's got he's been divorced. He stays divorced. It would have been better if the ending would have been he hit on Pierce Brosnan because he's about to be James Bond. Uh, you know, I think it just would have been kind of like a nice twist, but it would have been too much for the 90s, I yeah, think. Yeah, it was too ahead of its time. It was way too That was Remington Steele. He wasn't James Bond yet. Oh, so. yeah, Remington. Yeah. Oh, great name for a razor, terrible name for a spy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so uh, I'm going to the Holy Land. That's amazing. That's not amazing. I'm exhausted, and I'm scared, mm-hmm. and I don't want to go. <laughs> Sorry, I almost made you spit out your rainbow beer. I love that you said you're scared. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared. So today, I get off of work, and I fly down to my house, fly over to my house, and I'm freaking out because I'm trying to make dinner at 530. It's already 535, and I got slammed by the worst traffic I've seen since I moved here. So I'm bobbing and weaving like a well, 1488 is from Satan. Yeah, but so I try to avoid it as much as possible. I yeah. come through neighborhoods and all this, and I couldn't because the neighborhoods were actually worse than 1488. It was bad. Everything was bad. So I get home. I roll up, and Shannon had made... Steak and potatoes. She oh. cooked like four steaks. Uh, it's like Cracker Barrel. Giant, yeah, like the giant flat iron steaks or whatever you call them. I don't know. They just, I just eat them. Uh, <laughs> and then giant baked potatoes. And it was just, you know, it's my happy place. I'm yep. in a happy place there. Yep. And uh, I said, when I pulled up my car, I've been so tired lately. When I pulled up, I said, I am going to kill everyone with kindness. I'm going to be so nice. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm just going to enjoy the hell out of my kids so i come in and i walk in that door and i'm like how's it going everybody they're like hey daddy mm. daddy hey! we're gonna go eat daddy and they're all <laughs> cheering me on the dog's practically wet in the floor he's so excited to see me <laughs> so then we go into the kitchen table and i sit down dog sees a squirrel we let him in the backyard things are great going great and i'm just like how are you doing today kirtiri like what, what are you up to She's like, why are you so happy after work? You're the usually hell? miserable. <laughs> the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> hey, Pa, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. What are you trying to get me in on the ground floor of an exciting new opportunity? What is this, an MLM pitch? What is this? <laughs> so I, I really, I was like trying my best. My daughter's like, why are you so happy? 
And I was like, I, you know, I'm going to the Holy Land tomorrow. And then I was trying to say, and it's made me, you know, I'm going to miss you guys. Then Kateri interrupts me with, uh, with, uh, oh, so that's why you're so happy to go because you're going to be away from us for 10 days. And I was like, uh, wh- uh, no, that's not what I said. And then she you- starts laughing. And then, uh, and then Shana goes, hey, afterwards, are we getting the true story? Afterwards, um, let's go right to Target and we'll get you some socks. We'll buy you some new shoes. I love that you're still shopping. With my wife the day before. No, oh, so this You're is going the point. The country, yeah. This is the point. I I haven't packed anything. I bought the wrong chargers. <laughs> well, at least I'm, you got some wires. Yeah, I got wires. I got wires for days, son. And uh, I'm just like so not thinking about this trip because work has been crazy. I tried to onboard this lady, a new employee, and uh, God bless her. But I'm like, hey, come tomorrow at noon. Forgot I had a meeting at 11:30. So I'm like texting, <laughs> getting all these people. Like, go talk to her, make her feel welcome. So anywho, it's like I'm doing everything ass backwards and so uh kateri goes why do you need to go to target and i said i want to get some socks and some undershirts kateri goes oh that's right because all your work socks have holes in them and then she said uh and then noah and i was literally halfway to saying it. I, w- I went ah! and noah goes well that's because he's going to the holy land <laughs> he beat me to the dad joke it's beautiful oh. i've trained him yeah that's what that's what formation is so uh yeah, man, Holy Land. I'm not. Uh, I'm excited because it's the Holy Land, and I've never been. But dear Lord, there's so much going on in life. I literally, literally, I was talking to Leslie today, and I said, "So I'm not going to be here tomorrow, but neither is your coworker, Jennifer. She's coming on Thursday. So tomorrow, just take all these books and read them. <laughs> Become a master of the Catechism. I'll be the here. I I can offer assistance. Ryan, we don't need another HR violation. Damn it! I know. Yeah, it's okay. Is it? Nope. So I'm going to the Holy Lamb. What are you doing when I'm gone? Besides wallowing in uh, despair. Yeah, right. Uh, there won't be much joy in my life Mm-mm. for these 10 days. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to uh, get a ton of diffusers. Ooh, a lot of lavender. Yeah, just because you, there's probably you're probably going to have a lot of MLM stuff that are going to come your way in the Holy Land. <laughs> Um, it's made out of real olive wood from the Mount of Olives. <laughs> really? Then why does it say made in China in the back? Ah, don't uh, read. No. <laughs> China is district in. I almost went Russian. China <laughs> is <going>. district in <laughs> in, in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, that's funny. Uh, I'm sorry. Was that a Russian sorry, accent? What? Yeah. Uh, while you're gone, man, you I don't know. Okay. I don't know what I'm going to do. Probably a lot of work. Yeah. I wonder if yeah. Father Jesse could run a metric on our studying habit or our work <laughs> habits and then just like like some arbitrary thing like keystrokes on the keyboard per minute mm-hmm. right and then all of a sudden i leave from the office and everyone within a 20 foot <laughs> radius 20 foot. like quintuples their <laughs> their 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 output is unbelievable hey guys i thought of a funny liturgy <laughs> joke come here <laughs> right yeah well and it's you and father david are gone yeah so yeah, but he doesn't disturb people. People disturb him. True, right? true. Well, you're well, and Father Matthew's still gone. So I'm, I'm literally down here. You are the only person at this end at of this our little micro hall. hallway. And I think, um, I think people are going to celebrate. That'll be a little bit quieter, a little bit more peaceful. People are going to feel like, oh, is it Christmas? They're going to be like, oh, there's like really, there's not many people here. It's quiet. 
I can come in. I can get my work done. I don't have to come in after hours. One day I'm going to come in after hours. I'm going to like walk in and someone's going to be burning incense and there's going to be like a Tibetan Buddha statue <laughs> and there's going to be like weird sitar music playing and like high dye things hanging from the walls. Hey, man, we're just really chill. Oh, no, oh. Gomer's here. Well, it could be. So my freshman year of college at Edinburgh, that's where I played football. Mm. Um, Third string? Um, I was going to be a starter, but stubbed my toe. <laughs> uh, so busy. So busy just, with math. Man, I was I was really a scholar first, athlete second. Um, but the one, so one weekend I went home because I was in uh, Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. So it was only an hour and a half from my home. And then came back, my roommate, some people in the hall, what they had done, they took my desk and they had moved most of my stuff into the bathroom. Oh, nice. Now, that's not the funny part. Okay. Still funny, though. It's still funny. Very funny. Yeah. There was a kid, really super sweet kid, kind of very socially awkward, but he was very sweet and he kind of attached himself to me. And he's a really nice kid. Um, so the best part was when I opened the bathroom door to look at my desk, he was legitimately, he was actually sitting there studying. At your desk. And, and everybody, I mean, everybody just lost it. Everybody lost it. Cause, and again, he was a little bit socially awkward. So he, he thought it was funny, but he was like, no, no, like, you know, I'm friends with Brian and I'm, I'm like using his desk cause he's not here. And he was legitimately studying. He had the, the light on that was on the desk. It was on, there were no other lights on in the bathroom because it was motion censored. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. And it was like, but, but then there's also that moment where you're like, my roommate that night when we were like, we were going to sleep and he goes, that was hilarious. And he said, there's a, there's a part of that though, that was kind of weird where the guy was kind of attached to you in a disordered way that he was willing to be at your desk in the bathroom. Hey, Brian, just to let you know, I licked all of your pencils. <laughs> you did what? Nothing. <laughs> Did you say you licked my pencils? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It's just extra moisture. In that the bathroom. That bathroom was warm. Everything. So nice. <laughs> Did you know an eraser can smell can smell like the human who used it for up to 12 days? <laughs> now, why did I tell that story? Because when you return, you're going to come back, and it's going to be like when Mark Wahlberg returns from Planet of the Apes. Did I get fired? No, what? no, no, you're no, fine. no, no. We just kind of, we've sort of rearranged people's jobs descriptions <laughs> so you know mike so there's like, a piece of paper over there you need to sign it <laughs> what is we, lc oh that stands for lowly coordinator <laughs> damn it we knew it. of christ so we kind of put you into their order you're now in charge of the whole thing you have to go to mexico city also that's where we put your desk and your plant <laughs> whoopsie man make you imagine being the head of a religious order i would rock the crap out of the legionnaires They'd be known as the coolest religious order matter of months. Six months tops. Does coolness matter, though? It does if it's a religious <laughs> order I'm associated with. I think I'm going to hang out with a bunch of nerds and theater geeks. No, thank you. That's the Jesuits. <laughs> Changing theology just to like people and get people to like you. They're not going to like you. You're a theater geek, Jesuit. They're your, not going to like you. Your universities are going to close. Just It's not working. It's not working, except for Georgetown, but that's solely by Cal Newport. <laughs> that's right. Cal Newport and Josh Mitchell are holding that institution up on their backs. The funniest thing is every time I listen to Cal Newport's podcast, uh, I just did today as I was driving over here, he never says Catholic University. 
He always says a yeah. Jesuit university. Well, because he knows. Right. I think he knows. Yeah, he, he knows. Know. His father was, or grandfather, father, grandfather, grandfather, was a famous Jewish theologian. Yeah, right. Didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that. They said he used to take books, theology books, into the bathroom with him. And he would have stacks of them in the bathroom that he'd just be reading. Yeah, that's and how so, he met my buddy Steve at Edinburgh. They, they were in the bathroom. And things. Yeah, were, I didn't pick up that's on that. Okay. How sad. That's I was like, buddy met. In my head, I was like, oh, of course. You've met the legendary course, Jewish theologian. Yeah, of course Rabbi. It was an Edinburgh joke. It was an Edinburgh joke. But he told this really funny joke that all these people would get books from him, and they would open up and find his the last place he read from uh, Poop Shrieks. No, from he would use toilet paper <laughs> as bookmarks when he was in the bathroom. That He'd rip so a square funny. off and throw it in there. I thought that was hilarious. He had uh, one of the worst known cases in the in the greater D.C. area. Of uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> I read through the whole Babylonian Talmud while sitting on the jump one sitting, and I could never sit again. Yeah, I knew that was a joke. He, uh, little known fact about uh, old Rabbi Newport. <laughs> he, uh, he had hemorrhoids really yes. bad, <laughs> but then he got a squatty potty. But he was... The Torah has never been the same. Super smart, though. Tore up that Torah. He just... <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And I think his father was a, like a famous physicist or something. Not, not famous, but... Or, I mean, yeah. Infamous. He was infamous. Yeah, but no, I think Cal Newport knows that Georgetown's not a Catholic university. But he does read a lot of Catholic books. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he wrote a whole, in one of his books, he had a whole half chapter on uh, Sertelange. And so, his, in his, was it called Intellectual Life? Mm-hmm. You know what's funny about this is I was talking with uh, our youth ministers, and they had just done an adoration night, right? And they uh-huh. were a little disheartened at um, some of the kids' attitudes adoration and this is not most of the kids it's not their first time it's they've done this they did it like five or six times last year part of life nights and stuff but it's a smaller group so they thought it'd be a little bit better you know it's 100 kids not 600 like our normal and uh they were focused they had music they gave them handouts of like prayers you can pray in adoration they all had bibles so they had right things that if they got you know just totally like what am i doing like they had stuff and they had talks on like how to pray and all this stuff and they were a little disheartened at the outcome. And I, it was just me thinking, like, listen, if you are literally amusing yourself 16 hours a day with your AirPods in your ear all day long, like, do you expect them to have the capacity for solitude, stillness, and silence because you gave them an hour, gave them half an hour, you know? Like, it, it's not, like, you have to cultivate, you have to cultivate a life that can proceed from like intense activity, uh, constant bombardment of noise, but then silence and contemplative, you know. You can't do that. You can't just switch that. That's a, that's a skill that's developed. And so I was, they were like, yeah, you know, that's right. And I'm like, this is the beginning. Like adoration for an hour for a high school student that never is quiet and never experiences boredom and peace in the middle of that kind of boredom and outside, an absence of outside stimuli who doesn't just run to those things. Those people, like, that's a superpower to be able to have. Do not immediately crave amusement to take me away from my solitude. But then the thing that is shocking to me is, like, this is exactly what Romano Guardini was talking about all those years ago when he's like, modern man is incapable of true worship. We're incapable of some symbolism, but we're also in, almost incapable just by the nature of work and of everything, like entertainment, life. We're incapable of just being still 
being mm-hmm. alone, being. And that's the thing that really, like, really stuck out to me. And I was talking with this guy today, and I was just sharing like some of this stuff, and I just said, you know, if, if your whole life is saturated with media, consumption of media, like you mm-hmm. have to do for your job, then when you turn to prayer, it's going to feel so difficult. You have to stop the noise. You just have to stop. So I, I actually think now that it's actually part of the, you think of, um, you know, circumstance. We, I, I, I make, I draw the analogy with like the moral act, right? Where we talk about the, the object, um, <clears throat> the intention and the circumstance. And we say, St. Thomas says, right, the circumstance falls outside of the nature of the act, except when the circumstance is so, is such that it actually becomes part of the nature of the act. Right. And so I think, um, I think there, uh, <clears throat> in terms of liturgy and prayer, I think of John Paul II's ad limina address to the bishops in the northwest of Washington and Idaho in 1998 when he's— when he, you he just casually his, think of that? Yeah, just right before I go to bed. You're like, um, oh, ad limina, ad limina, ad limina. Oh. <laughs> I got the catalog right in my head. <laughs> 98, ad limina. Oh, my gosh. Um Maybe too. We love you. <clears throat> but he says this really fascinating point. He, he's, he's talking about active participation, full conscious active participation. He breaks each of those terms down. But in the in sort of the preface to that, he says this phrase, he says that liturgy must be countercultural. Um, and uh, which, which in a certain respect seems to always be the case. Yeah. Um, but I think there's, I think now my, my point in bringing up the circumstance aspect is, is we are, uh, I think Mike, Michael Hamby that we've we've read numerous times. Like he has this great line where, or, or at least this this insight, um, which certainly is come coming from because you referenced it, uh, uh, Neil Postman's book, "Amusing Ourselves to Death." That's a good book. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, but the idea is not just that we use technology at a at an uh, unprecedented pace, or that we have access to these things uh, at an unprecedented capacity. But uh, Hanby says that we, we actually conceive of ourselves as technological beings. Uh, so it's not only, it's not just the disembodied Cartesianism, if you will, um, but it's, it's almost, can I say going back to Tocqueville? Uh, uh, always Tocqueville. Um, Tocqueville. But the, the inability to be settled and yeah. to, to be able to, uh, I mean, Tocqueville says not only to be settled, but intellectually we can't cohere. We can't put, things together so these things the, these these things while distinct are actually they overlap with each other and so the inability i mean well what fulton sheen used to say it t- took him like 15 minutes to get into prayer where you had to you know you had to prepare to 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 pray and so i, I think yeah the your point about the holy hours like how long is it going to actually take for us to to be still and to be at, at kind of to have a kind of spiritual rest where we can turn into prayer. Yeah. And you think about it this way. Most people had solitude most of the day for most of their lives. Unless you lived in a big city and your whole job was around other people all the time. And solitude is not just about physical proximity. It's the, Cal Newport had a whole thing on this. It's the, basically it's like the inability to turn off the mental inputs of other people or something like that. Yep. And, that idea of like, but most people, most of the day, like if you're a farmer farming, you're not walking out there with your iPod blaring in your ear or radio going, giving to the top 40 hits, you know, like you're alone with uh, a, you know, team of horses and you're plowing a freaking field mm-hmm. 
or you're out there with your kids and you're they're all off throughout the strawberry patch picking fruit and all this stuff like and i I think of this stuff all the time like it's so hard for me i feel like mentally on my a game when i'm on retreat i get away from everyone you know i'm alone i enter into solitude i don't check email 400 times a day i'm not dealing with any of that stuff but it's like after being alone for two days like i feel like a human being again and you don't realize like oh my goodness this most people kind of came from this place like yeah they're with other people but if you wanted solitude as of i mean 96 percent of the world's population was agrarian until the industrial revolution and like you think about that and you're like yeah 96 percent of the world were following flocks herds or they had farms. That was the, that was the, I mean, like, think about how embedded we were in nature and how nature's signs and symbols get embedded in our very life. And now we don't have any of that because it's all an artificial environment. Like, it's the middle of winter. I'm eating fresh uh, watermelon flown in from Chile and it's delicious. Yeah. So, anyway, it's just crazy. And you end up not even realizing how technological, like, you, like Ab- Dr. Abigail Favalli, just like you, you were saying, we conceive ourselves as technological beings. She has this wonderful book on, or wonderful chapter on contraception in her last book, The Genesis of Man and Woman or Male and Female, and she, or The Genesis of Gender. And she says, I've come to see and think of myself, to conceive of myself as uh, uh, an infertile being. Like fertility is not a thing. She goes, and this leads to women forgetting to take their contraceptives, which leads to pregnancy, which leads to abortion. And she's like, but I conceive of myself. That's like, why would I not have sex? I'm, you know, there's not going to be any problem. Oh, wait, I mean, there's a chance I could get pregnant. Like, she's like, you don't even think that. Something else that Hanby says, which I think is just to, to sort of co- connect all of this, he says uh, the, the sort of the substitution or the, the sort of the overcoming of, of theory by praxis. And he says, we are, we are so good at doing things for which we have no idea how to think about. Now, of course, it was a terrible sentence because it ended with a preposition, but... But yeah, just that that idea of we've become so good at doing things for which we have almost zero capacity to think about. And it's when you read that or you hear that, just think, yeah, that isn't just technological saturation. That's uh, the way that it goes all the way down. Uh, You talked about the farmer and you think, well, why wouldn't the farmer listen to the, the earbuds? Well, because he had to pay attention. Um, So, so there, there's almost this way in which we, uh, we feel often perhaps desensitized by things or we've be, I'm, I'm sorry, we've been desensitized by the technological saturation that it actually, um, that's just a sort of a natural default. For like well, I'm with the kids doing the dishes. So I'm going to listen to X, right? Or, so there's don't a way. You, don't you dare. No, no, I won't judge don't you. Don't you dare. No, no, no. I won't judge you. <sighs> I'm Let a practical you. man. I have to figure, I have to be paying attention when I'm doing the dishes. Mm. Right. See, I'm an impractical man. Right. And I'm also an impractical joker. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. good. Whenever I'm doing the dishes, I listen to Dr. Jennifer Frey. Mm-hmm. I let her sweet, sweet voice teach me Thomism the way, <laughs> the way Christ intended. Right? <laughs> through the lens of Father Survey Pink Airs and his critique. And you got to go through McIntyre in there as well. Oh, so also. beautiful. Man, she is amazing. She's done some great stuff. Yeah. If loving Dr. Jennifer Frey is wrong, mm-hmm. I don't want to be right. <laughs> I love that line. You know where it comes from? Uh, Dr. Frey? No. I, I'm not sure where she's from. <laughs> I know she teaches at the University of South Carolina. There it is. With Chris Tolleson. But anyway, 
no, the the line "Loving the Lord is wrong." I don't want to be right. What is it? Eddie Murphy as a in preacher what? in you know how he did like ten different characters in Coming to America. Oh, I haven't seen Coming to America in literally fifteen years. Oh, I was going to say, how have you not seen that? <laughs> yeah, in no, in fifteen years. You know what movie I did see that I've never seen? Okay, let me try to describe it, and you guess it. Okay, I've never seen this movie from from start to finish. Okay, but I have seen the entire movie many times in blips and blurbs on TBS. Christmas, so like, I'll Christmas watch story? a bunch. And then, have we already talked about this? No, I was. Gonna say, I said a Christmas story. Because I said, okay, so I said this to someone else the other day, and that's exactly what they, <laughs> they said. said the same thing. That is crazy. And, no, no, not Christmas story. It's not a Christmas seasonal kind of movie. Oh, like uh, man, on TBS. TBS on all the time when uh, I was like maybe in middle school and high school. Caddyshack? No, <laughs> I don't know. Serious movie drama. This is your last chance. Who's in it? If you tell me who's in it, then I'll know. Uh, I'll only tell you one person, but you're okay. gonna get it. You can give me. You can give me like a fourth degree like actor. black belt uh i don't i don't think i know any of the people other than the main people anywho um oregon freeman oregon freeman uh chain reaction with keanu reeves <laughs> <laughs> i picked the most obscure movie possible that's a movie where he's like on like a ski thing yeah, yeah. the lake and he's trying to kick yeah forward. is it shawshank yeah. Uh, yeah, Shawshank Redemption. I've never seen that movie oh, from beginning to really? end in my whole what a, life. What a great movie! The first thing, I, the first scene I ever saw, my parents were watching the movie, and I came out of my room and I went into the kitchen, and all this is a true story. All I saw was the the guys beating him up. I can't remember oh, what they call yeah, him yeah. in the room, in the film room, and they bring him onto his knees, and he goes, "This is the only line I heard. When I say suck, you suck." Something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God. And I was like a sixth year or a sixth grader. And I'm like, chubby little boy running away. Like, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the two this is going to make me confused for the rest of my life. Yeah. There's two scenes where he gets beat up by them. And, and yeah. there's implications. Oh, but yeah. then he, he, um, he basically is able to fend them off. Yeah. In that one, he did. Yeah. In that one. But, but uh, yeah. So I didn't really. I was like, oh, my gosh. Gang rape. There was, there was a lot of scenes in there that Shannon was like, is this true? Like, is this stuff happening? I was like absolutely yes like absolutely yes oh and the other scene i saw from shawshank was the guy throwing the rock or the chess piece through the poster oh the warden at the end and i'm like oh i ruined the the whole movie kind (laughs) of ruins it yeah and i was like oh so he gets out that's great when does this happen like in the middle (laughs) it's such a good movie it really is it really is and since we mentioned mcintyre earlier an even better movie groundhog day what does that have to do with mcintyre uh groundhog day is a it's like a it's an account of the good life because <clears throat> so, so there's a really uh really why'd you just clear your throat into the microphone uh just to hide my nervousness <laughs> be less awkward i don't know is that the right <laughs> Anywho, we were saying. Anyway, <laughs> michael foley from notre dame wrote a really good article and uh, i think in commentary uh maybe 10 or 15 years ago about groundhog day as a, as a sort of virtue ethics uh, defense. But he basically makes point is as you think about the movie, he's, he's very selfish. He, he's, he's sort of inwardly turned. And once he sees that the day is repeating, right. He's kind of then is like, Oh, I'm nothing matters. There's no rules. I'm going to wake up. Everything's the same. So, and then, so he goes on that trajectory of, you know, sort of extreme individualism and then, falls into despair and then 
tries to be somewhat good, to, but only in, in, in a sort of utilitarian way to try to get uh, Rita to fall in love with him. Then he realizes that's going to fail. So then he starts just doing those things because they're just good to do. He saves the old man who he knows is going to die. And he just does it, and he feeds him, and he reads French poetry while he's the old the old homeless guy's eating, and he knows he's going to die, and he just he just does these things because they're good to do. So it's actually a really it's a actually a pretty cool sort of uh, <clears throat> philosophic approach to the good life. Did it again? Did you did? Yeah, I'm just I'm phlegmy tonight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so me and you are teaching a class on. Uh, morality, Catholic morality, Catholic moral principles. What is that? Or what is rality and how can I get Mo of it? <laughs> Seth Berman, fan of the show. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, right into the damn no, microphone. I, I went here and then went over. <laughs> I would I probably would be more self conscious if I had the headphones on. That's not a critique of you. <laughs> Fair enough. No, Seth Berman, fan of the show, said that. Gave a talk on a I think it was a confirmation retreat. Like literally Literally 15, maybe 18 years ago. He said that. He said, his, the title of his talk was, What is Rality and How Can I Get Mo of It? <laughs> it was the funniest thing in the world because it was so stupid. It was so right. Can I tell you one real quick one of my uh, very funny Seth Berman stories? Saw him. Uh, we very briefly, we said hi to each other, and I was I was going in for the hug. Oh, no. And he goes, oh, I'm not a hugger, and, and I, but I was already committed. He goes, oh, you're still going for it. You're still going for it. <laughs> he hates he hates any of that oh, physical contact. It was great. You just this is pre-COVID, too. It was great. <laughs> yeah, your hand was in his back pocket by the end of the hug. It was great. <laughs> Took his wallet and his dignity. <laughs> his- Morality, yeah. So it is so funny to me because this is such an interesting cross-section of kids. You got public schoolers, homeschoolers. You got die-hard committed uh, Roman Catholics who conceive of the world through the lens of Roman Catholicism as they know it. And then there are people who could not care less about Roman Catholicism as they know it. Right. And so week in and week out, I'm trying to like, how can I woo these people? And then I'm done wooing, and I'm like, I just want to hang out with the people who give a dang right. about their Catholic faith. But that's like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> if you, like, uh, don't have a monotone voice, then they'll, like, love you forever because you're not a jerk, right? And you're not boring. And But the idea is, like, crafting oral foundations. Because this is what I discovered when you taught our morality class here for me, what, three years ago now? Um, uh, yeah, I think it was 20, 2019. Yeah, I... I I realize, like, when do adults get moral formation? Right. Unless you go to a Catholic school or you go and take an ethics class, but even in college, but even if you you do that at Lone Star, even if you do that, most ethics classes are a survey. It's not doing ethics. It's just mm-hmm. you know a historical survey of the, well, this is what this guy says about ethics. And now that's what that guy says about ethics. Now that's what this guy over here says about ethics, and it leads you being. You know, there was literally uh, a study done on it where people, the way that they teach traditional ethics traditionally in most schools is through, you know, you talk about a moral principle and then you throw up a thousand hypotheticals. Well, well, what if there was a fat man and you pushed him on the train track and he derailed the trolley? What if you knew the fat man? What if it was actually Santa Claus who brought joy to children, boys and girls all over the world and you just took away their joy? <laughs> but he also, okay, let me finish. He also was a gun runner. Uh, for the Viet Cong, like then, would you be justified? What about the children? And he considered voting for Trump. Oh, but he guy. actually voted for Biden. Oh, twice <laughs> in the same election. 
And he's dead. He's not and even a citizen. <laughs> I think he's Norwegian, for crying but out loud. He was registered in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, no, that is, uh, Strauss has a great line where he calls it the a survey of brillionaires. Yeah. Um, the way that, so he was talking about it, the same thing, political philosophy, the way that they're taught. It's just like a survey of brillionaires. You know? And I get it because you think that by introducing the people and their thoughts, you're introducing them to the concepts, but you're not giving them the rational tools wherein to do those concepts, right? right? To do the philosophy behind those things. Right. Right. And that's what um, I was listening to this wonderful talk. So just so everyone knows, I teach this class at 1130 a.m. on Sunday. Uh, on Friday. where? No. Okay. On Friday and Saturday and Sunday morning, I am filled with grave self-doubt, grave self-doubt, sheer existential dread. Also, a uh, competition with Brian that everyone's going to think he's a better teacher than me. <laughs> and there's a lot of resentment there. That's kind of like an inadequacy, resentment. He has such a comprehensive knowledge of morality, way more than I do. So what I do is on Friday and Saturday and Sunday morning on double speed, mind you, <laughs> I listen to the fine folks like Dr. Jennifer Frey. I literally go to the Thomistic Institute podcast and I search Whatever we're going to talk, like, you'll be like, I think we're going to talk about, like, freedom. We're going to talk about free will. We're going to talk about freedom. So I'll type in freedom, and then I will listen to every podcast on Double Google it. Yeah. What is freedom? Freedom. Wikipedia says (laughs) freedom is the ability to choose between opposites. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the freedom of indifference. Damn you, Occam. Damn you. Damn you, Bill. (laughs) So I, like, have the, I literally, every week, I panic. For three days. Yeah. And then I write up an outline and then I write extensively too much information. It's and then though. I forget my notebook at home and then wing it every single Sunday. That's so f- But you yeah. can do that, though, because you're you. Because I'm me. Yeah. And I'm Beautiful, me. flawed me. You're you and I'm me. and We're just co-people. Yeah. We're just ex- sort of floating around like atoms. <laughs> just two dudes in an office building. Being dudes. Being dudes. Or in yeah. a podcast. It's not weird. But no, so like last week, um, so it's just interesting, these like overlapping coincidences that happen because it lit a fire under me to like pull out my old morality textbooks and start going through. Like every time I teach theology of the body, about three weeks before I start rereading everything, you know, and going back Mm -hmm. and, oh, that's a great point. That's interesting. Then I start writing down talks. Then the week of, I panic that I'm not going to have enough good content. So then I go on YouTube and I'm like double speeding everything, um, trying to listen and gather all this information. And then, um, but it's been interesting, the stuff that I've listened to, because when you were talking about, like, how political philosophy with Strauss is like, would you say a, a, a survey of brilliant errors? Yeah. Uh, Joseph Pieper threw away his college education in whatever German blah, 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 because he said, we never were taught philosophy. We were only taught about historical philosophers. Right. And it just bounced around. And that's a huge problem. So then he discovered St. Thomas and Thomism. And he's like, I'm going to do a deep dive here so I can understand how to reason. And he was like, you cannot have a better, a better teacher than the universal teacher teaching you how to reason and how to do these things. Yeah. yeah it's amazing. Well, and morality is a really difficult subject. I mean, we, we've had this conversation many times. I mean, even, even um, systematic virtue approach even gives me a little bit of hesitation at times because um well kind of what you said before i mean one is to say the way that most of these courses are taught is is, is it, there's sort of like a, a a kind of a hyper focus a, a sort of a um uh like there's like this sensationalism about like very obscure situations or circumstances 
right? Um, the hypothetical. Yeah, the hypothetical. That uh, or morality is just as you mentioned, case studies. Particularly if you do something like bioethics, uh, you, you're going to get pretty much most of that is is just going to be normative everywhere. You're, you're not going to get any uh, anything about truth. You're just going to get. Uh, there, there's no right answer here, but we're just trying to show you that moral decision making is very complicated. That that's sort of the the kind of the aim of it is like no no there's no right or wrong answer. There's no such thing as truth. It's just these things are very complicated. People's emotions are very high. So yeah. <laughs> dot dot yeah, dot, uh, dot, that, dot yeah. Um, and it's you know it's interesting. One of the things that really opened ch- ch- sort of changed my perspective on the approach to teaching. It, there's many things, but one was uh, you know reading Matthew Crawford. Shop class of Soulcraft was his first book. Yeah. The world beyond your head, uh, becoming an individual in an age of distraction, which was his second book, which uh, which is really actually one of the main texts that I use when I teach ethics is um, this idea of part of it too. We, we you and I always talk about this. The, the thing that I always find fascinating is um, when when you read a text that is challenging your perspective or something you're you're not very familiar with. You you read Matthew Crawford and 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 you you know, here's this essay prompt, right? Whatever whatever it is. Um what do you think about this? The default mode of like, well yeah, this is about my emotional well-being and ethics is about making me feel good, right? It's uh, all the context stuff that we continually belabor much to your chagrin. Uh is like how do you naturally respond to these sort of modes of inquiry? And and I think that this sort of not a not necessarily like a practical atheism, but a, a kind of um, practical subjectivism, practical historic historicism. It's, it's very it's very natural for people to just respond in ways. Um, so yeah, so so it's that is so deep and pervasive. I mean, Strauss even makes the point that uh, you know there, there's actually two caves. Like even to get into the main cave of Plato's Republic, there's actually a cave underneath that. This is how pervasive modernity is like you got to get actually out of this deeper cave and into the cave of the republic turns out you're in the mines of moria whoa and they call it a mine a mine <laughs> they are coming it's a rave in europe it's just a it's weird it's like what is this welcome republic? to the cave what is this book five what is this <laughs> welcome to book five the hottest rave in all of bohemia now is that German synod? What was that? Yeah, that was the synod on synodality for oh. the German bishops on bishopality. <laughs> it's very confusing. Unconfusing ality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the hardest thing about teaching Catholic morality is one, trying to figure out the on-ramp. Yeah, the on-ramp right, right, is exactly. the hardest thing. Yep. And, you know, the I, I like the Matthew Crawford idea of, like, you know, becoming an individual in an age of distraction. Like... Mm-hmm. His his main thesis of his book, which we've talked about a bunch of times in the show, but his main thesis of the book is essentially every the ideal of the modern person is to become an individual or you, you know to be yourself, to be true to yourself, blah blah blah. But the problem with that is it's exhausting to try to come up with to be a true individual or less the way Kant kind of labels it. Um, the modern the great philosophers at the beginning of modernity their whole thing is like yeah you have to figure it out for yourself you have to think through every single rational thought in your own head has to be well thought out has to be a conclusion that you came to not that someone else came to and you agree with that you came to and if you do anything other than that you are in dogmatic slumber right and then and he just says that's impossible that is impossible so what do people do 
they default to the crowd. They default to the collective. They default to the fad, the trend. Well, I understand myself as a political liberal, a progressive, a conservative. You know what? I'm alt-right. I'm alt-left. I'm a Bernie Sanders left. I'm a, you know. And so they concoct these identities for themselves. And I shouldn't say that in the third person. We concoct these yeah. identities for yep. ourselves in the hopes that, like, well, I belong to this group. And I agree with, you know, some big things about this group. So that means I'm going to just agree with everything about the group. Because then it saves me from having to, to do all the ratiocination for myself. Like, I don't have to worry. about I don't have to sweat the details. The details are already there. I'm just going to yell at people that don't agree. And his whole point is like, no, no, no. The only way a rational mind can become an individual is if you stand in a tradition. Right? And he, his whole emphasis was, obviously, with the first book called Shop Class of Soulcraft. The tradition of a craft. You're participating in a thing that will outlast you, that came before you, that you are stepping in like a river, that greater people than you have been a part of, have shaped, and that you can be a part of and shape. And if you get really, really good at it, you will shape the future of this craft. And he uses like organ making because it's just a yeah, huge, yeah. huge tradition, right? 400, 500 years of, of this one family, you know, from Europe to the United States and all this stuff. And how they talk about using different materials and carbon fiber, this and that, and how most of that is stupid and you just need to use the old wood, you know, and all this stuff. But then you find out, like, how they advance it, how they change things, what they do. And it's like, that's when they become an individual. When they've achieved such a high level of mastery in the tradition that they can contradict the tradition and still know who they are and where their place is. Yeah, and <clears throat> the two the two things uh, generally I find to be the most uh, – that that I find that students find are, is the most striking where they individuality is inherently social. That's one of his big things. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly the, the nature of tradition, um, apprentice, you know, master relationship. Uh, um, but also uh, I, I think the, that so much of what we, what we do that it, it, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to put a, a real sort of, uh, I guess a kind of a bar of like, well, how do I measure what kind of impact that I've actually had? Well, if, you know, if, I, if I make this table that's in front of us, it's actually pretty immediate. There, there's not much um, intermediary sort of layering. I can just be like, well, it's people have bought it and it, it hasn't collapsed and it, it actually stands upright and it's pretty sturdy. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's a kind of immediacy of the, uh, of the sort of the feedback of, of, of making thing. And I think so much of really the work context anymore is, is we, we don't have that. We don't have that immediacy and, and we, we could go into, which we've already done the email thing, but yeah. certainly that that's a huge factor as well. The, the email component. Yeah. But there is no, like, you know, there's that guy from the durable trades book who abandoned that life rory groves yeah he abandoned that life because he's like i'm a software engineer and there's nothing yeah. permanent everything i've done be deleted tomorrow yeah you yeah. know or all the work i've got someone else can step yeah. in and just completely change everything yeah. that i've done yeah yeah i think it's a great uh the it's a great book in terms of that the, just the practical nature of stability of professions and also durability over an extended period of time uh, so how which, do you how do you teach high school students? What was your first class like? Uh, in terms of this Catholic morality, yeah. or in terms of like when I actually taught at a Catholic high school? No, no, no. Oh, no, no, okay. No, no, you don't no. want that no glory story? That. No. Well, some might. No, no one does. <laughs> Nobody does. 
Um, so my approach uh, is very much indebted to Strauss, and it's a lot of the unpacking of what's what is the situation that we're in. Situational ethics. So you think of situational ethics ethics Correct. Yes. Circumstances are the primary thing. Uh, There's no such thing as intention doesn't matter. Object of the act, what is that? Never heard of her. Uh, I've heard of sister act, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Not not even a little bit. (laughs) But I think to be able to unpack that, we we, we have to be able to see at some deeper level how the, the, the hand be line. We're so good at doing things for which we can't think about. We don't know how to think about. Um, so what does that mean? Where does that come from? And I, I do a lot of the Tocqueville stuff because I, the, the modernity critique thing uh, is, is, is very good. It's true. It's helpful. But I think the Tocqueville thing is much more in, in a number of respects is, is um, very illuminating because it not only hits the intellectual part, like the general modern critique coming from Strauss's modernity as an intellectual enterprise, which is, again, very good and right. Um, but the Tocqueville thing, I think, adds a, a kind of a depth to that. Well, what if you're born into a condition of separation? You're born into a condition of being cut off, right? That's the, the, the democratic age. Now, now that changes things. So if you're born into a condition of being cut off, what are your proclivities, right? Josh Mitchell makes the the sort of he connects Augustine and Tocqueville, uh, you know, like what is sin? Sin is either a, a turning in and a hiding, or it's this sort of jumping out into the world to change it. I mean, Tocqueville basically says the same thing: we either jump out into the collective to try to change things, or he says, what's the most dangerous, the, the most significant threat to democratic ages is loneliness. You get trapped in the solitude of your own heart. So I think to be able that that's the depth that you have to plunge. But no, I mean, like, you know, like, you're in it, you're talking to high school kids. Yeah. What do you, how do you lead into it on the first day? Well, lower my expectations, number one. Uh, and I don't, and I mean that, while I say that half kidding, I also say that in all seriousness, because of the significance of the, the problem. And two, I, I mean, for our class that we're, we're doing, we're not reading, we're, we're not sitting there reading text together. Right, it's, that's it's, what I mean. Like, it's a different scenario. Yeah. So, um, you got 40 yeah, minutes with the but, kids. Yeah, right. But, but it also gives you the opportunity to be very Socratic of, of pressing them and, you know, just really having a conversation. And that, and to be, you know, to be able to say, too, at a real level, like, this is not just me lecturing to you. I mean, it is that in some respects, but, you know, I'm actually changed by this very thing like you are we're actually we, we have this shared this shared condition that we're not only being human but we're also children of the modern world well, what does that mean like we actually we actually share this um because we're much closer than age and if i was like 65 and teaching the class right um so yeah i, I mean i think in terms of like the practicality of it um I'm not overly concerned about it in the sense because you you just have that natural like there's going to be kids who are like oh love this there's going to be kids who are like look I I, I love I, I love your energy or whatever you're a really good teacher I really appreciate you but um, I'm just not interested yeah I just I don't know I just don't I don't care about I don't care about these being things. thoughtful right 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 and and so you and then you have others who are like well, you know oh, wow I really like this this is all really intriguing but I'm not really sure what to make of it and I don't even know how to like continue on. Um, so I, I always presume that's you're going to get that mixed crowd. 
unless this is like this is a, a public lecture yeah. and there's going to be people there that are interested in the intellectual life in that these sorts of ways yeah then then it's 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 a different kind of response so i just keep my expectations low and just allow sort of the the conversation and the philosophic and theological discussions to kind of take i guess that's going to be the hard thing about doing what we do because there's the element of evangelization. Mm-hmm. You know kids in that classroom do not believe in Jesus Christ. There's the element of, but I'm still teaching them catechetics, as if they not only have received our Lord into their lives, mm-hmm. uh, sacramentally, uh, theologically, you know, understanding, whatever. Right. But they love Christ, and they love him so much that they're willing to change their lives and follow him. And we're here to lay out the path of how do you follow Christ. Right. right? The sequela Christi is the heart of oral catechesis. How do I follow you, Lord? Because right now we're on the path. We're the status viator. We are the ones on the way. That's our status. We're on the journey. However, right, so morality kind of describes that returning to God, the following of Christ, but they don't care about Jesus. So half my class is me making subtle comments of apologetics defending Christ, and the other half is me doing advanced catechesis for high school students on moral theology, right? Yeah, right. And right. that's the hard part, I think, for me is like, I know that there's, you know, maybe about four or five kids who really actively don't want to be there. Parents are making them be there, and I have to woo and win them for Christ. Then there's the kids who, like you said, in my class, it's the kids who are just like, yeah, whatever. You know, it is what it is. I'm here. I'm yeah. going to be a jerk, but I'm not going to listen. And then there's the kids who are excited. And the kids who are excited, I feel, I, you know, there's this element where I almost want to just be like, why doesn't everyone else just go and I'll just be with them and actually, but that's break not time. Yeah. You guys stay though. Yeah, you, you guys, guys stay. stay. Talk about Aristotle. Yeah. This is the honors class. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, I think so part of that too is the, I, I think this is something you and I talk about. And I've actually, I've had discussions with other people as well. It's like the question of, you didn't get my permission to do that, but it's fine. It's no, fine. no, no, no. It's in an email. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you have your out of office, like automatically because you're awesome. going to the Holy land. Doesn't go to the Holy land. <laughs> You'll answer it on, on your turn. Oh, I um, yeah, but I think the context there matters. Um, something like CCD is not apologetics 101. It's not uh, inclusion, right? Not what it is. So, so there's the, um, so there's this sort of conceptual awkwardness of you don't believe, and that's the fundamental presumption. For the existence of this class, right? So there's a there is a both a burden and a and a kind of uh, not not that it's impossible because nothing's impossible with God, but it's the sort of uh, I need you to save this person, and you say, well, I'm I don't even want to try that because that that isn't what I do. That's not who I am. Only God saves. Certainly. They can listen and hear, but um, the, the, it's it's kind of like the, it's the context and what you're trying to do don't match. Right. If the presumption is, hey, you know, uh, this is year three, um, pre-theology, Dominican formation, um, you know, we're going to, we're, uh, everybody here is in preparation to become a Dominican priest. Oh, and by the way, we're going to bring in these six atheists, despise the Lord. Uh, you know, even though you're doing Phil nature right now, it, it's still though, 
You're doing philosophy of nature. Oh, philosophy. Sorry. You said Phil nature. S- like, Phil nature. That is so, that shows you just like, I'm such like a intellectual. Oh my gosh. You are such an academic. Oh my bureaucrat. goodness. That was like something I said at this conference once. Everybody <laughs> laughed and got it. Phil nature. Phil Love nature. that guy. Yeah. Phil, Phil Connors. Phil. Now we're back to Groundhog Day. Beautiful. Uh, but, but again. Phil. Phil. Uh, but that's just not. I mean, it, it isn't that you can't do those things. It's that it's not the overarching principle or presumption. So that's it's a very difficult task, if not impossible. And it's supremely frustrating. Yeah. We're going to talk about morality this year. Oh, okay. That's great. Also, my kid hates you. Can I put them in? <laughs> no, and they're going to let you know it repeatedly. Yeah, no, yeah. that sounds great. But, that won't but at the other end, too, and there's a, uh, when you had, uh, when Father Fletcher was on, right? And he brought this up with respect to liturgy. I think it's also true with respect to morality. It's like there are actually very few people that care about the document. Yeah. Right? Or that, you know, care about an, in a more in-depth study of the intellect of, of the moral life at this intellectual level. They want to live the moral life. They want to be good. They want to flourish. They want to be holy. But if you sit them in a classroom and listen to you or me talk about it, they might be like, wow, that was really fascinating. Thanks. You know, is there a collection basket or I mean, what, what's next? So, but, so I, I think you, I think it's the having those expectations, even from the, the teacher's perspective of like, you know, that, that this is not, you're not always going to be teaching in the academy in that respect. So, you know, I, I don't know how to teach morality without, so like when we teach Catholic morality, what makes it Catholic? Grace, right? The telos, the end point. Yep. Right. So, uh, our dignity, human dignity, image and likeness of God, uh, the capacity for free choice because we're made in the image and likeness of God who's free, like all these things. But when you start to unravel this stuff for kids and you want them desperately to get it and you're looking at their faces and clearly they don't care you know you got these handful of kids who are just like i am resolved not to care that's when i tell prison stories i literally go. i was like it reminds me of a time i was in prison and then i will just tell a story that has nothing to do with anything and it's just to tell a story that they're like wait what oh that's great and then once they're less apathetic I'm like, and then, and then I'll go right back to my point. I'm just like, I'm hopeless. Like, I don't, I don't, I have nothing exciting that ever happens in my life except for the fact that I'm going to the Holy Land. And I, did we talk about that? uh, We will. Okay. Spiritually. Um, (laughs) But I do this, this prison ministry thing. And there's always fascinating stories. I must like Dave Van Vickle must do that with exorcism stuff. Hey, hey, uh, real quick. Can I get back to explaining uh, the unity of the virtues? However, one day saw a girl's head spin around and shot out pea soup from her mouth. It was awesome. You know, like immediate attention. Everyone, what? You know. Sure. Yeah, and I think, too, there. And um, because you don't do anything with the prisoners or, or really anything with your faith outside of academia, right? Is this your pitch? Yeah, you should. I've got a ground floor. I've got a ground floor opportunity for you to go to prison. you got 10 friends. <laughs> They're all in jail. How are you going to love them? How are you going to love them? Such good guys, but, like, the stories are so crazy. And so they they draw people in because they're stories of conversion, right? And the, these amazing things that the people will say or whatever. And so I just think of that and I'm like, yeah, okay. So they, these people don't believe 
So I'm going to tell a story of a guy who, you know, was as far from God as you can get, and the Lord still reached him. You know, maybe it's wishful thinking on my part. I'm projecting their story onto these people. No, no, but I think, too, you're talking about, you, you mentioned this before. I mean, it isn't that you don't give or preach the basic kerygma in, in something like CCD. You always have to do that. But that's not the overriding presumption, right? But, but in, in when you go to prison, you're not saying this is CCD, right? Or, the, you know, this is, this, is, um, this is year three of, uh, you know, novitiate for the Dominicans. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a different context, so you have to approach it differently. You can't give the same thing. So, so there's that aspect. But, again, I, so you not only have the different context, but, I, again, I, I think it's, it's the, not so much the practical nature uh, but it's also just that people generally are just not overly intrigued by the deep intellectual stuff. That that doesn't mean they're bad. They, they actually might. They're generally they're very good and holy people. Um. So, but it's like, but even even in a let's say a, you know a, a, a traditional type of of community that the 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 congregation generally might be love a more traditional kind of liturgy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all, nerds you know, the, nerds or theologians, um, in, in you know, theologians in potency. But, um, but I, but I think nerd. there's nerds. Did you say nerds. theologian in potency? I did. I did. Wow. Just to, just to, you know, make it Aristotelian. I, I want to say that one of the one of the funniest moments of my life was when Angie, when we had, uh, I was on the the first time I was on Catching Foxes. In 2016, yeah. February, I wrote it in my diary. Interview with a peeping Thomist. Yes, yes, great so Ralph. 35, I think, 36? 36, great Ralph McInerney line. Yeah. Um, uh, and our friend, the later that week, we had dinner with them, and I think you you guys were there. And, and she said, you know, I listened to your podcast with Mike. She goes, I didn't know you were so smart. And so while sounding like a compliment, like, well, what did you think of me? Beforehand. I thought you were a bit of a dullard. I kind of, yeah, I just, I, yeah, actually, I really didn't like you. <laughs> so, it's kind of a, it was a funny, funny thing to say, but, um, I, I, it, it still shocks me that most people don't read. I tell my kids all the time. I said, reading is not a superpower. Love of reading is a superpower. If you can love reading, no matter what job you have, you will always be like bouncing near the top of your field because reading means you're hungry for knowledge. Sure. You're, you have a humility that you don't know everything. You have to confront the fact that, like, there are people who are experts in your field, and it just makes sense to learn from them. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you could say nonfiction reading is a superpower because I think it's easier to read fiction. It's easier to get locked into a story even if you don't like it. Like, there's a, ser- a whole series of sci-fi books. I probably read 15 of them, and I hated them. But I just kept reading because I was like, there's this one storyline I want to see to the ending. But, like, it's a superpower. Because so few people are intellectually curious or, or whatever you were saying. Like, it doesn't stoke their furnace in that intellectual thing. Like, sure. yeah, no, I love a good liturgy, but I'm not going to read a Dom Prosper. <laughs> right. And then in my head, I'm like, the collection of now irrelevant books. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, right, that the idea that reading something like a text or a document or a set of them that that uh, we go back to that content context description is like the context is already occurring it's it's kind of like when students show up for intro to philosophy or ethics i can't it would be silly and and 
outright, um, you know, fallacious on my part to be like, oh, they're coming in with a blank slate. Zero context. I'm going to just deliver all this beautiful content to them. They're just going to drink it in. And I was first disabused of that when I became a tutor at the uh, at the University of St. Thomas. Um, you, you come out of grad school or you're like in the heart of it, you know, you're like, oh, man, everyone's going to love St. Thomas or everyone's going to love St. Augustine. And like, hey, look, um, I'm failing this class. Here's a 10-page paper, and it's due in 35 minutes. Can you read? Just go, oh, wow, okay, this is where we are. Uh, I can't really check any of the content because I'm probably only going to get to page six in 30 minutes, but that's when it's due. I can look at some grammar stuff. Yeah. So that, that's when you, those things of like, well, how are, you know, it's a longer podcast, but how are traditions actually communicated and passed on? And we both started our class with the, you have to understand Christianity, the living tradition as a practice, a way of way of life. Right. If you don't understand it as a way of life, you're not going to understand it at all. You're not going to be a part of it, number one. But you're not going to understand it. And it's, it's only those Catholics who understand Christianity as a way of life, a way of being in the sure. world, a way of moving through the world, that you can even begin to understand, like, the import of the Trinity in, on daily life and, and yeah. the incarnation. And- that's right. That's right. Paul Griffiths from Duke, he had a great—the uh, title was great. I don't necessarily agree with all of the substance, but he wrote a critical review of Father Thomas Joseph White's book, uh, Christ, Christ Our Light. Yeah, Christ Our Light. Christ right? Our Light. He, and the title of the article was A Life, Not a Logic. Yeah. And his critique was, this is too intellectual. It's not portraying the Catholic faith as a way of life. Now, again, I think uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything Griffith said, but— in principle, he's right. I don't necessarily think Father Thomas Joseph White would disagree with him. Yeah, but that's just not what the book was. That's right? not what it was. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting because, like, when you when you keep conceiving of Christianity as a body of doc, like that's the context. Everyone, even people who are Christians, keep conceiving it as a body of beliefs over here, a body, of, a list of actions over there. Mm-hmm. And the only way that they kind of overlap is when, you know, I'm not allowed to use contraception. Right, Or, yes. you know, I can't yes. euthanize grandma. And we just kind of hang out in those categories. But then when it's a lived thing, and then it's my daily life, and you read things in the catechism, like where I think it says four times in the catechism, in all different places, Jesus' whole life was an offering to the Father. Mm-hmm. Or Jesus' whole life was salvific. Right, you begin to understand, like, oh, it wasn't just Good Friday. His whole life was a Good Friday. His whole life was an Easter Sunday. His whole life was lived. The daily most minute task of Christ was anointed. Yep. Right? Yeah, it really is a daily practice. And it's a daily practice that's never meant to be, like, isolated. But when our culture creates homo solus, we create just a bunch of isolated people, Christianity becomes almost unintelligible. And that's, I think, what we're seeing. Uh, you asked the question earlier about what what difference Christianity adds or you know, Catholic yeah, morality, morality yeah. right? And I love that there's a great um, – I think it's actually the dedication of C- Peter Crave's book, uh, A Summa of the Summa. In the dedication, yeah, he says it's for Father Norris Clark, who was not simply a Thomist, but he was a little Thomas. And and I think, but but when I hear that, I think you know, we're, um, 
it, that's that's what it is. It, it's it's becoming little Christ. Yeah, it's not just Christ's little golden boy. <laughs> yeah, that that's and I mean I think that's the uh, certainly you can start with that as like the the end game, but that's the goal is to become another Christ. Um, what's what St. Paul says, you know, we be, we were ambassadors for Christ. That that's it isn't just sort of this exterior thing that's added on. It's um, everything. The game's different now. Yeah. And and the, the problem is once you reduce Christianity to the series of things that I do or don't do, really don't do, and a series of things I believe, then the sacraments become not elements of a whole human life, you know, that right. McIntyre notion of the narrative of a human life, like I'm hammering a nail on a board. Yeah, I can see that. But what are you doing? I'm hammering a nail on a board. No, I'm building an office in my backyard because I'm an intellectual and I want to set up my study and my wife doesn't want me in the house, you know, with the kids and Mm-hmm. So I'm building an outdoor office, right? So that's McIntyre's understanding of like the only way things become intelligible beyond mere descriptions of what I can see with my own senses is when you supply a narrative. And the thing is true about Christianity, right? But but it's like we can't get a glimpse of just like we use the word discipleship, but we don't understand what that means because we're not attached to a life, the thing I do on Sunday, right? Or you know maybe daily if I'm of a particular persuasion, but. The thing I do on Sunday and, you know, after I look at porn or hook up with someone on Tinder, I, you know, then go to confession and mm-hmm. wash, rinse, repeat. Um, that even things like baptism become almost unintelligible. Yeah, it's this ritual. Now, I paid the damn money. I've gone to the freaking class. Force, you know, get my kid baptized and get the hell out so I can stop, you know, I don't want to be at church anymore. Just get my kid baptized. It's like, oh, I, we had a woman who repeatedly, repeatedly interrupted a baptism class. She's like, I just can't understand why, because the person giving the talk just casually mentioned that, you know, if you're not going to mass, if no one in your family is a practicing faithful Catholic, then that, if there's no founding hope that the child will be raised in the faith, then the church delays baptism. And that shocked this woman. She's like, why? If someone says they want to baptize their kid, then you baptize their kid. It's like, but, but what if they don't practice? The Who cares? Like, I don't understand, and, like, 10 minutes would go by, she'd raise her hand, and she's like, I'm sorry, I can't get past this. Well, who does the church think it is by refusing? Well, it's the church sacrament. The church dispenses the sacraments purchased for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why would anyone, who thinks they have the right to yep. tell you? And it's like, well, it's a church thing. And it's, I don't, well, it's what I want, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this crazy, weird war right. for baptism, which means nothing to these people. Except a cultural or or a whatever a life thing or a vague attachment to something called God, you know, or you know, I mean, they, they, people almost always say, "Oh, I, God is very important in my life," but they never say Jesus, you know, right? It's so bizarre. There's no narrative unity, right? It's all fragments. Yeah, yeah, and even from the Christian perspective, uh, I think maybe we've talked about it before, but just that, that which actually adds to this, but you know that that it's articulated quite clearly by um the the Harvard biologist Stephen Jay Gould uh, uh yeah he's real fun again um that that basically to try to hold christianity and science together is to keep them so in such a way that they never overlap so you keep them as parallels that never cross he calls it the non-overlapping magisterial authorities right where yeah i mean it's, it's noma who doesn't like acronyms non-overlapping magisterial authorities n o m a and the idea is that science deals with objective reality. Religion deals with ethics. How you 
morally live with the reality that science that is the proper object of science. So, it, so, so it's from a Christian perspective. See, science and the faith can be held together so long as their legitimate realms of authority never sect. Um, and and that, so that 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 sort of really helps to I think further solidify the perspective, the, the side, the, the the aspect we're trying to critique of like, well, yeah, no, science deals with reality and just religion we just got to figure out how to live with it you know, how do we morally live with what science tells us is true so now you have no place for sacraments you haven't you actually don't have a place for you know the main dogmas and doctrines of the church right um then you get yeah then you're back at saint paul if you know, if the resurrection isn't real then we're still in our sin we are still in our sin you know what's interesting like whenever i think of the ten commandments there were 15, remember the last... The, oh, they the, dropped the first five, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. Oh. These are the 15... Well, that was from History, History of the World. world. Okay, yeah. good. I want to make sure you knew that reference. Yeah, yeah. that's why I, that, Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I make movie references, which, you know... Are, they are obscure. You know yeah. too much. Uh, yep. But the Ten Commandments, I always thought was so funny because, like, the first one is the best one, right? It's like, and the Lord thy God, thou shall not have strange gods before me. And it's such an epic... You know, commandment, Martin Luther famously said, and I think pretty much every Catholic theologian would agree, if you break the bottom nine, you've always bre- you're always breaking the top one, right? <laughs> right? Like, you know, you take the Lord's name in vain, you violate the Sabbath, you're not honoring your father and mother, something else has become an idol. And it's fascinating when you think about that, I always say fascinating, it's interesting when you think about it, but I was listening to a talk on Rene Girard, and Rene Girard, it might have been by Bishop Barron, talks about him all the time, but... um there was this moment where they said Rene Girard held in a certain way that the last two commandments are because they concern desire, mm. right? And that's so important for us to understand that it, that uh, evil willing can be rooted even at the level of desires. And that's often, that's where the corruption begins. And so he would just say that it's fitting for the Ten Commandments to end where, um, where desire, where false desires begin. Like when we think of evil, we think of the actions that we have out here. Right, right. But the real reason why the dog returns to his vomit and the the sow that's been washed returns to the mire is because the desires haven't changed. You know, and you know, you got people with pornography addiction. Why, Lord, is this? Not? You still desire this thing, right? The desire hasn't changed, right? So you might try to guard your eyes, but you really want to see. Mm-hmm. So you shut your eyes during the Game of Thrones sex scene, but, you know, you let your ears pick up what you're, you know, when you imagine it. and Like, these things really do happen, and then it takes you down that path again. And then, so the question is, like, how do we address the desires? Because until our desires are righted, they will always have the tendency to basically lead to, you know, the sinful act, right? Mm-hmm. And Rene Girard has – did you read much, Girard? Read uh, I really have not read much of him. I know – I, I kind of – know the general sort of outline of this yeah. theory of mimesis and yeah which you know kind of what you were just referencing that all makes yeah. sense and it's, the, the it's scapegoat theory yeah yeah it's it, it really is incredible i don't know if i buy it as a theology of atonement sure, but I, sure i can buy it as a uh what what the atonement of christ and the christ crucified did in its effect to history which was right. like here was a scapegoat that Im, like we poured our violence out on him and he conquered violence Right. Yeah, and I think the desire thing, I mean, when one of the things that's really fascinating, too, when you 
read Plato's Republic and you you read uh um book uh book eight, which is like this sort of psychological decline of various types of political regimes from like uh, aristocracy all the way down to tyranny, then he sort of has this analog for then how the individual soul breaks down. And uh, well, I mean, when you get when you when you break into oligarchy and democracy, and you just go, "Holy crap!" It's exactly what, yeah, that's going on right now. And it has nothing to do with politics. It actually has to deal with desire. So it, it's this: when you see desire in this way, um, this is what this is what happens. Um, now you no longer have a city by nature. You have um, feverish city, right? It's not so that, right. The, the, I love this, the idea of like democracy is not the equality of desire or the equality of, of all before the law. It's actually the equality of desire. All desires are equal and they all need to be unleashed. That's the feverish city. The fever is that no desire can actually be, be fulfilled. So they're unleashed, but unfulfilled. Yeah. So oligarchy is that level where your bad desires are held in check but just by a thread and you break down into the last decline before tyranny. It's like, we're not all, it's not about actually equality under the law. It's about our desires need to be expressed in a juridical way right now. Yeah. So it's good. It all goes back to Plato. We're all footnote to Plato and Aristotle. All of theology is but a footnote to Plato. Mm -hmm. No one said that. Someone did. No. I mean, I just said it. But yeah, you mean like before me? <laughs> no, the line was, was it Pius X? All of theology is but a footnote to Augustine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was that great line? Happiness is getting every everything that you desire and not desiring anything that is evil. Pius XII said that? No, St. Augustine did. Oh, oh. It was a footnote in one of his articles. <laughs> It was a footnote within a footnote, which yeah, was no, four Augustine, pages long. Yeah, Augustine said that. Uh, happiness is getting what you, getting all that you desire. Trying to, I think I'm saying it right. Getting all that you desire, and not desiring anything that is evil. All that you desire is good, and have it right. So it's good to desire food, but not in excess. In excess, that'd be, you know, it's good to desire sex, but not outside the covenant of marriage. So to desire all the right things means your desires are all aligned correctly. Now here, I think, okay, we need to end here. But Good my next thought, start. it is, my next thought is, okay, in educating desire, which is what the virtues do, um, what becomes of those are differently, what becomes of those who are... Like you and me? Uh, no, different. Like, hmm. uh, because the question becomes, can, can people with same-sex attraction be virtuous if there is a particular desire that is for whatever reason is rooted in a disorder meaning you know whatever the sexual attraction to one's own gender and so the catechism calls it a disorder meaning philosophically you know use philosophical language um which famously father infamously father james martin wants to change to differently ordered as mm. if it's not as right. if it's not a lesser thing but the idea is I, so i have a friend who is bisexual uh, she has a wonderful ministry. She's been on the show. Um, she's an incredible human person. Um, but someone told her one time, well, you can never be virtuous because you have this disorder. 
right? So even if you're perfect in everything else, homosexuals are, will always be unvirtuous because there's this one desire that they can't educate, right? They can't whatever, mitigate, turn around, convert, pray the gay away, all this stuff. So that's like right. a difficult thing to think about, I think, sometimes. Like, I think we can end with this. We, we have to be able to connect desires with some kind of paradigm or standard. Yeah. I think that I think that is often lost yeah. in the conversation. So that could be the next one. Next time on Catching Horses. Foxes. Foxes. I'm sorry. I'm so drunk. <laughs>